Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one. Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Um, real quick, uh, just some housekeeping. I wanted to apologize for the audio quality of this particular show. Um, the Midwest Misanthrope is, is just notorious for touching the microphone, touching the microphone cord, touching the table, tapping his foot, uh, making all other manner of noises, um, doing the dishes, having the TV on in the background. Um, he does everything but shake down drinks with ice and a blender. Uh, so there's that. I've tried to cut out as much of that as possible, but again, I apologize. It also turns out that I had a sniffle, and so there are some sniffs in there uh, that I might have missed, and I apologize that for that. And then I also had a lozenge in my mouth, which I will not duplicate ever again. But if you detect some something odd with my voice, it's that there's a lozenge in my mouth, and it's causing more spit than is usual in your average mouth. So one way that you can sort of mask these imperfections is to change your playback speed to like 1.25 or 1.5. Um, I recommend doing this anyway, because you can get more podcast in at in less time. And then there's always, you know, if you hear something and you're like, wait a minute, I want to hear that in real time because I want to really digest it. You can always just skip back in a minute or two or whatever and switch it to real time or even slower if you like. Uh, But that's one way to mask sort of the sound. I promise that we won't have these problems moving forward. I've got a new mic set up and so on. And the quality of production is going to get much, much better for season three. Today, the Midwest misanthrope and I are going to review Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. Now, the misanthrope makes no secret of the fact that he is basically an ignoramus when it comes to Ayn Rand, political philosophy, and so on, but demonstrates very aptly that he also understands why this book sucks why Ayn Rand sucks, and why the political philosophy that followed these two books, and specifically Ayn Rand, also sucks. In other words, Ayn Rand is so terrible that you don't have to know anything whatsoever to pick up on all the horrible themes of the book and how terrible of a writer she was. Now, some of you probably like Ayn Rand. As many of you probably know, she was a Russian-born, raised in communism, moved to the United States, and became a capitalist. Now, the right-wing globbed onto her because of her past, that she used to be a communist, and then, I guess, converted, quote-unquote, to capitalism, and that she was a woman. They didn't like the fact that Ayn Rand was an atheist, but were willing to just sort of turn the other cheek, so to speak, uh, and forget about that. Being a former Russian communist and a woman was a enough for them to elevate her to the highest regard. Now, in season one, I touched briefly on why Randian philosophy and political philosophy is a failure in episode three, where we discuss gay rights. By listening to this episode, if you feel that I have adequately discredited objectivism, then maybe that's all that needs to be said. If not, you can always email me at earseductionpodcast at gmail.com in order to tell me what you'd like to hear more of, or perhaps you'd like to defend Ayn Rand and her objectivism viewpoints and the political science that has followed. I'm certainly willing to discuss and debate this with you or to have at least some kind of interaction. And maybe if you're interested, you can come on the show and we can discuss it in real time. But without further delay, I give you the Midwest misanthrope and his views on Ayn Rand's fountainhead. I heard that there's like some politicians 
Uh, use it as a frame of reference. Uh, United States history, as far as like great piece of art, and the book is called Fountainhead. Um, written by written by what's what's her name again? <laughs> Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Yeah. So the book takes place in like the I believe the 1940s, and uh, it's basically I think it's like Chicago, um, and the main character Rourke is a um, what we call it. Why am I drawing a blank right now? On the, architect yeah he's an architect Mm -hmm. he kind of comes from you know comes from nothing he's a diy'er type of guy um he's surrounded by multiple personalities um all of them basically inner city hierarchy of business and or you know wives or girlfriends and he's basically just really focused on his craft of being an architect as as a form of expression and the value of that and how it can be corrupted and um, he just stays the course no matter the consequence he's a presence that makes people kind of mirror themselves off of him uh, and it was just it didn't fucking end it was one of the longer books not wise but one of the longer books I've ever had to uh, get through and it you, was, you haven't read Atlas Shrug right i have not <laughs> okay yeah but it is so have you read fountainhead yeah i read fountainhead and i read atlas shrugged okay probably 10 or 12 years ago okay so i, so had, what- to, I had to do a primer i had to i had to reread part of it and and kind of get back into it because it, it took a minute to figure out exactly where i was in the book can i can i ask you what brought you to those books yeah when i was uh reading a lot of philosophy in college um okay one of the like one of the main wings of philosophy uh, political philosophy specifically is uh, Randian uh, objectivism. So Ayn Rand kind of oh fuck off, dude. Kind of founded objectivism, although she didn't really. I mean, it, it was it was based on principles that had already existed, and there was an ob- objective philosophy already out there. Uh, it just wasn't specifically, I don't think anyway, coined as objectivism, and it wasn't Randian objectivism. So anyway, and Randian is based off of Ayn Rand. Yeah, Rand is Randian. Yeah. Yep. So she, there's an entire philosophy based off of Ayn Rand. That is, that is fascinating, dude. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, what's amazing is its impact on society. But but go ahead. You were giving, no, us, giving us the short and curlies of the book. I'm not quite sure like what else. I mean, so... I, <sighs> so what's the story about? I, I mean, the story about is, you know, this architect, he just comes across different, you know, either bosses, different employers, uh, uh, co-worker dynamics, uh, girlfriends, uh, and, you know, he, I think one of the main arcs of the story is that he uh, he makes this building and society finds it offensive and they basically readjust it. But then they, you know, somebody later on down the line appreciates the fact that he was being expressive and sees the benefit of it. Gives him the head of uh, another project and he makes a dream building without having any oversight. Uh, <laughs> so he kinda, like had to earn it by earn his craft by you know being put on trial and never compromising and accepting the consequences and not going with the, uh, the theme of compromising oneself 
as the parties around him do so often. Uh, that's basically, I didn't, I didn't read, I didn't know anything about Iron Man. I didn't read any footnotes or anything like that. That's just like the, the butt naked, you know, stripped down. I read a story. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, uh, just to expand on that a little bit. So it, it's, it's Please. a literary attempt to show the struggle between the individual and the collective. Right. And that was her, that was her wheelhouse. That's where she, that's where she planted her flag because she was raised in Russia. She was, uh, came from a communist background. She moved to the United States and became a fairly successful businesswoman and a fairly influential writer. I, uh, all right. I, I, Say again. Sorry. It makes sense for me to hear that. Like it, it helps me digest it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't really have anything else off of my opinion now. Oh, you're um, welcome to it. Right. What did you think of the book? Besides it, it being epically too long. It was just like so far from reality. It was, you know, pieces and parts were staged in this almost kind of cartoonish way. Uh, the, there's attempts to try for deeper was. Say that again, because you broke up. There was. It seemed like there was like attempts to make it deeper than what it was, because the pieces were so fictional, you know? It, it's like these characters were just like like the main character was this uh, I mean I get it the main character the protagonist is the stoic type of personality but I couldn't figure out if it was the time in which it was set in that made everything seem like cartoony I mean the characters were just there were morons there wasn't there wasn't the oper- it was like in order to make the main protagonist seem better we had to make everybody else just seem stupid that makes sense yes in but, fact this is one of her biggest criticism yeah okay it, yeah it's just like so everybody else has to be morons in order to get your message across in the you know in this story arc and it was it was so set up and it seemed so fake and so false even with no like you know the 40s being kind of like a hey what's going on there kiddos you know the swing swing what's going on in the papers you know that type of mentality even with that aside it, it just seemed it, it it didn't seem valuable at all because there wasn't anything that in my opinion could transfer over into human interaction in today's day like i i would never put this much effort in framing characters as being this dumb and this like motivated by you know uh, evil sense of you know mob-like mentality i mean i get it it happens but at the same time it was just too convenient and too long-winded and blowhard and this there was no subtlety there was no craft to it i thought I, it was just it was confusing as to why this book is appreciated so much it's almost like for those who want to already confirm that bias and an outlook of society and they have this same you, they might look at this book and go, that's exactly what it's like, which is a complete disconnect to society. And, and I say this by just by reference that the economic strata that is present in this book are basically the higher upper echelons of, you know, financial stability and economic strata. Uh, different type of when people, I've heard people say like, well, yeah, this book is referenced at a time when America was great. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not a social justice warrior, but this is like one of the whitest books I've ever read in my life. And I've read books where all characters are white, but this type of, this is this is an example where as a white man, I can't even fucking deny how white this book is. <laughs> right. Like, this is like, uh, it's, it's like unnerving to me, to be like, yeah, 
I mean, this is this is. In fact, in my opinion, this is a prime example of why people would be like, "Yeah, fucking white people suck." And be like, "Yeah, I get it, man." You know, fair <laughs> 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 deal. What? How can you say that? Yeah, I read Poundhead. Yeah, we're we're, we're fucking delusional. <laughs> I, I no idea what's going on on day to day. You know. Yeah. Uh, once you separate, you are gone. You are not a part of society. You're looking at people as if they're fucking ants. You know, <laughs> it's like lesser than. And uh, this book just seemed to shine that theme in my opinion i don't know no uh, go ahead yeah yeah i i guess that's my that's my two cents on the book uh well it, so. we don't always agree uh on philosophy we don't always agree on synopsis or takeaways <laughs> from different literature or, or movies or whatever but in in this case we agree on 100 <laughs> percent. really yep and th- this book is uh just a it's so funny and ironic that one of her main gripes was the inability of characters in literature to have free will. So she's heralded by her sycophant moron followers as somebody who was able to write in uh, free will into her characters. There, it wasn't convenient. It wasn't premeditated. There wasn't any lead up. It wasn't uh, a puzzle piece that fits in, kind of like what you were saying. The book exactly contradicts that i don't know how they could have gotten it any more incorrect because it's so contrived yeah that like you said it's almost painful holy shit yeah but you 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 nailed it every theme of the book that's criticized is a theme that you brought up and and there's probably some that you didn't but that's the main theme and that's the main criticism of the book the fact that it's painfully long is also a main criticism but not not context like the content isn't criticized there it's just the delivery um but the content itself is just the most wretched nonsense you can think of save a few uh diamonds in the rough if you will sure so do you want to do you want to jump into philosophy or do you want to talk more about the story itself? I'm, I'm it's, I don't think that there's much more. I don't think it's necessary to talk about story. Uh, I, I like to hear about the philosophy. That's cool. Unless you got nope. something. I just don't want right. to step on your toes. Yep. No, I'm interested to hear more about. Okay. Yeah. So at uh, org. Uh, you can get a primer on objectivism. <laughs> objectivism is a, a philosophy that sprung from Ayn Rand's uh, writings specifically and has been embraced by, uh, no no uh, surprise here, um, the right wing, uh, the right wing politics of the United States and Europe and uh, specifically the libertarians, <laughs> which I which I think is is almost funny. Yeah. I can see why they're drawn to it, but libertarian uh, ideology and, and morality is essentially bankrupt. Um, but in objectivism, a few of the main tenets are uh, reality, reason, self-interest, and capitalism. It's a, a totalitarian philosophy in that it that it attempts to. Um, lay groundwork and foundation for a personal philosophy, um, focusing on self-interest, reason, and the acceptance of reality. And then it also bridges the gap that she... Interestingly enough, um, criticizes in her like if if you watch interviews of, with her and if you get some of the themes of her book, she thinks there should be a complete separation of uh, e- economics from politics. In the same way, to her credit, that she thinks there should be a separation between church and state. Now, to to include an economic structure and framework into a personal philosophy <laughs> sort of breaks that barrier. Um, I mean, I, I don't see these hard lines between your personal philosophy, your politics, and your economics. I think those are kind of one and the same. Yeah. They all inform each other. Yeah. And I just, I can't, 
I can't. It's tough for me to grasp because it's 2018. So I'm trying to uh, be, you know, respectful with the time and place. And maybe it was just such a radical, you know, pop culture success, you know, uh, with this book that it was, you know, passed around the water hole. You know, it, it, you know, it reminds me of the same thing of like Fifty Shades of Grey. I think it had that type of. Um, maybe it had that type of impact on society. And I, right? and I was gonna say the secret. Okay, nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to where it, it it became a way to live your life. It became a, a worldview. Yeah, for like maybe like a couple months, and then they're just like, "Oh, this is <laughs> this." Well, yeah, it, well, until it didn't pass peer review, essentially, until the rest of the public intellectuals uh, came out against it for obvious reasons. Yeah, as as it, as will happen to every philosopher, by the way. It's not that she's an exception. Right. All philosophers are ridiculed by their faults, and all philosophers are faulted. I just, I there, there's there's nothing that brings to the table like with Reebok and that I experienced where I was just like this lady is truly a philosopher <laughs> like it's like to me it's just like it's just a fucking author you know yeah just the book and uh and so it, that's what's just so interesting where it's like why a person would cling to it as so many people seem to do and like you said uh the right wing I can I can see that these characters possibly speak to that you know elite status being that upper you know economic strata politician you know type of thing I, I can see how that would how they would gravitate towards it because you know it's just it, it, it's ammo you know it's something for them to reference and utilize people have access to and I can I can see that I can see how even like you know I can see how all, all any politician any I can see any politician from any side grabbing this and be like oh yeah you know I think that the you know just how white it is <laughs> def, uh, <laughs> you know wouldn't be as accepted in the democratic but I'm sure if some asshole got behind this book you know and said like these are good factors to consider. I'm sure somebody would be like, oh yeah, I'm either this. You know, hey, I just, yeah, fuck, man. It's disappointing that uh, politics associate themselves with this book mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> well, to, to be the contrarian a little bit, I do disagree that any politician could pick up this book or pick up these ideas and run with them. I think it is no coincidence that it landed on the right wing. And I think it's no coincidence that it sprung a whole new like Tea Party-ish libertarian right wing Okay, based on it. I don't think a socialist would pick up this book and be embraced. <clears throat> but, and I'm not for socialism. Just saying. I don't think a socialist or a communist would be able to to justify any of these um, ideas into and incorporate them into their politics. But let me let me get to the four pillars of Randian philosophy: objectivism, as it's known. Okay. So objectivism begins by embracing the basic fact that existence exists, and specifically, existence is independent of any consciousness. So it's essentially a, a rewording of the law of identity, which is a logical absolute, if you want to call it absolute. I don't like that word, but they use that word to describe it. So a logical absolute. So A is A, right? A is not not A. So it creates, in, in logic, in formal logics, it's like a it's like an equation, like one equals one. Okay. And one does not equal not one. So if it's anything other than one, one does not equal that. Okay. Reality exists outside of your head. It exists outside of consciousness. So in that right. sense, that's a pretty good foundation. That's a, there's four corner cornerstones to this philosophy and this is actually a pretty good one um i think this is true this is probably 
why it has uh, her philosophy has so much force behind it because the metaphysics are correct. Um, sure. It it goes on beyond that into La La Land, but but at least this cornerstone is is correct. Now, with this cornerstone comes uh, atheism. She uh, claims that you must embrace existence, and in doing that, you must reject all notions of the supernatural, the mystical, including God. So she was a very outspoken atheist um, in the forties. Okay. I think uh, that as a default position is also correct. I mean, it's no, you know, I'm an atheist. Um, okay. And for, so that's probably no surprise. Um, right. The other cornerstone is reason. <laughs> so one of her uh, essential advice, uh, some ad- according to her website, uh, some ad- essential advice that she gave was to embrace reason as an absolute. Um, here, I think we find the first problem <laughs> in her reasoning or in her philosophy, and that's that reason is an absolute as if every person is capable of it and i think um some people are capable of it to certain degrees but it's like many things with humanity uh, uh, there's a spectrum yeah. and uh, i think both of us know people in our own personal lives that do not reason they are not reasonable they're irrational and and they seem to be willfully so so as one of these uh one of these uh principles of reason she smuggles in free will okay so she says that we have to choose to activate our minds to set them in motion to direct them to the task of understanding the facts and to actively per- perform the steps that such understanding requires so according to her our basic choice in life is to think or not uh, to choose to follow reason, uh, Rand argues, is to reject emotions, another major problem. To reject faith, there she grounds herself in some reality. And any form of authoritarianism authoritarianism as guides in life. So she rejects emotion, faith, and authoritarianism as any guide to anything you should do with your life. Shouldn't, those shouldn't play a factor in the choices that you make. Now, I disagree specifically with rejecting emotions. I don't think we can reject emotions. I think that's uh, something that religion tries to do, <laughs> tries to reject the self. It tries to reject your own personal experience as invalid or to be subject to a, a god or something else. They try, you know, don't masturbate because it feels good because that's bad. They give all these proclamations that don't make any sense. To reject yeah. emotion is to reject a huge part of humanity. So I think it's not only unrealistic, but it, it just can't be done. It's impossible. So when she, when she smuggles in uh, free will into reason. Uh, She smuggles in uh, an idea of free will that we know for a fact is incorrect. It's it's the uh, modern day libertarian free will. We know that that's incorrect. Now, at the very least, all we can say is that we don't know for sure that we have free will. So to build that into one of the cornerstones, along with the rejection of emotions, this the whole cornerstone of reason starts to fall apart. Yeah. For all the damage that emotions do to our our decisions and and making reasonable, logical decisions, they also inform our decision making. And there is a reason to care about emotion. There, There really is pain and suffering due to emotional states. And avoiding that pain and suffering can be navigated what, what based on what the goals are. And those yeah. goals are in direct relation to objective reality. So there is a direct link from reason to emotion. And there's a direct, even though emotions, like I said, can cloud reason or can can hinder the application of reason, they to a large degree inform us as to how we should reason. As long as you can sidestep all the, the, the knee-jerk reaction type emotions. 
the philosophy hides behind reason because who's going to argue against reason? But when you dig into what they mean by reason and, and what they're proposing is reasonable or what other assumptions they're making, such as we have free will or that it's a beneficial thing to reject your emotions, um, then I think I think immediately it starts to get very, very thin. And then you must reject reason in this sense. Well, she does talk extensively about reason and logic and the benefits of following it. And there is some value there for sure. And she's right to some degree. But you, like I said, you can't reject emotions and you can't assume free will. Yeah. It's just not safe to assume free will. We just don't know yet. We don't know if we have it or not. I think there's a very good argument against it that we don't have it. And immediately, if you take, uh, um, if you try to adopt um, libertarian free will, you, you immediately have to start hedging and walking, walking yourself back. So one way that we can argument in an argument, one way we could actually prove that this is wrong is uh, take the case of capital punishment. So your emotion, your knee-jerk emotion might be, okay, so somebody has killed my wife or whatever. Uh, I want them to die. That emotion... Revenge! Yeah, <laughs> right. That emotion now informs society and the individual on a decision that has to be made. Something has to be done with this murderer, right? This person that killed your wife. But once that person's detained, killing them does not make sense. So she she falls on the right side of that <laughs> argument yeah. in the sense of you don't follow your emotions, you base punishments on reason, right? The reason to kill somebody becomes null after they're captured and they are no longer a threat. Now we have to decide what to do with them. But the fact that we're even asking our question, what do we do with this person, is informed on the emotion that other people have, specifically the husband of the wife that was murdered, that this person needs to be excommunicated from society. It's those emotions that inform us. Now, the yeah. reason we have them is because of objective truths, because your life is worse off when, you're, when your wife is, is dead, right? It causes physical pain to you. It causes emotional pain to you. So we have that objective truth leading, leading us down this path. Our emotions are a response to that. We recognize our emotions can be knee-jerk reactions that we should not legislate or socially implement, but something does need to be done. So it's to just say, reject your emotions and follow logic or reason, yes, there's some value to that. But in your final decision of what to do with said murderer, those emotions are informing that something does need to be done, that this person is not allowed into society in any kind of productive way. They have to be singled out. So the third pillar, uh-huh. the third uh, cornerstone of the philosophy is self-interest. So, so this quote, man is an end in himself, <laughs> which is just weird. But um, the idea here is that um, by following our own self-interest, we will um, be the most productive we can be by following our own happiness and individualism. We will be the best version of ourselves we can be. And that is the best way to um, interact with the community at large. So you'll be a moral person because it's in your best interest to be a moral person. But self-interest is the highest moral good. So um, so the purpose sure. of morality is to teach us what is in our self-interest that produces happiness. 
Um, here, this is totally ridiculous. So listen to this. Man has, and this is a direct quote, she observes, being Ayn Rand, no automatic code of survival. He senses, his senses do not tell him automatically what is good for him or evil, what will benefit his life or endanger it, what goals he should pursue and what means will achieve them, what values his life depends on, what course of action it requires. So apparently she is rejecting all of evolutionary history and doesn't think that our senses are able to tell us what is good for uh, what's good for us. So we can't figure out that the stove is hot due to our sense of touch. We, we can't do that. Really, really hot things are evil according to our senses that we evolved. But according to her, no, we, we, we can't tell. We have no idea. <laughs> our senses don't give us any indication at all about what's good or evil or what's good for us, what's going to benefit us or endanger us. We, we have no ability to rely on our senses whatsoever. So here the, we're just completely off the fucking rails. So can you reread the third pillar just one more time for me? Yeah, so the third pillar is self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, the little the little quick quote here is, man is an end in himself, which yeah. kind of doesn't make much sense. I mean, I know what people would say about it, but it, it really doesn't make much sense. Ian's answer to this is, the purpose of morality is to teach us what is in our self-interest, what produces happiness. And then she says, man has no automatic code of survival. His senses do not tell him automatically what is good for him or evil, what will benefit his life or endanger it. And then she goes on from there. That's fascinating, man. That as if as if our eyes cannot identify danger, or as if our sense of touch cannot identify, oh, you know, something that's too hot for us that will harm us. As if we are not able to identify in our spouse that this person is not the right person for us, or that they are the right person. As if we're unable to, read the sign. we we can't even be attracted to to somebody. Our senses are just so bemuddled. Now, an objectivist would tap dance around this, and and they they always have a way to back out. Of these, I've I've gotten into a lot of conversations with objectivists, um, pointing out these these problems, and they always have some kind of slimy way of slithering into some kind of ethical stance. Like, well, are you saying you reject reason, or you know, it's in a it's in man's nature to do what is best for man, just like it's in the nature of a ball to roll down a hill. I mean, they always bring in these weird examples that don't make any sense. I mean, yes, balls roll downhill, but there is no nature of the ball. They roll downhill because of gravity. (laughs) Gravity is a force external to the ball, generated by the mass of the ball, granted. But no, it's not in a ball's nature to roll downhill. If that ball were in space, its nature would be to just fly around in space, float around in space. Yeah. So this this idea just makes, it it just falls apart. I'll be a little more bold and say I do not respect (laughs) this philosophy or people who who hold it. Uh, it, One of the key things that it leads to, and I Ayn Rand uh, explains in her books. Uh, Atlas shrugged, I think, a little more than Fountainhead, but give me, give me some. You just read it, so you can help me um, identify if it was explained in Fountainhead to any, in any detail. But I'll try. that altruism is essentially evil. Yeah, giving up something that you could have to get, I guess, to benefit your own self-interest and to make yourself happy. Giving it to somebody else is an evil. Yeah. And they they argue this, that if you did that 100%, then you wouldn't eat and you would starve and die or something like that. They say, if you gave away all your food, you wouldn't eat and that would be bad. You would die. And and I agree. If you take it to this extreme, yeah, if you don't do anything for yourself and you do things for other people, yeah, you're going to die. That's going to suck. But why would you ever advocate doing that? 
Why yeah. would you ever advocate being completely altruistic? What you, you can advocate, and conversely, why would you ever advocate that being altruistic is in some sense evil? That doesn't make any sense either, and it flies in the face of what we know about modern genetics. If you've read The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, and I think overwhelmingly, his idea of genetic transfer uh, has been peer-reviewed and accepted, at least philosophically. Um, a lot of the things are being ironed out as far as how much our genes control us. But why do we feel an intense urge to care for our children? Well, it's the selfish gene. It's the gene that wants to propagate through the generations. So you will find, and science shows, that people will spend an exorbitant amount of energy ensuring that their children do well, giving to their children, being selfless in relation to their children. And proportionately, based on the percentage of genetics your sister has, you will try to make your sister happy or you will try to benefit your sister in a selfless way. The same with your cousins, but in proportionate to the percentage of your genetics your genes that they carry. Same with your second and third cousins. Not as much, though, interestingly enough, for your parents or your grandparents. Certainly, people have a loyalty to their parents and grandparents, but they, they feel a much more visceral instinct to be selfless in relation to their children or and, and slightly less to their brothers and sisters, slightly less to their cousins and so on, proportionately in relation to the percentage of genetics they have in common. This self-interested worldview that objectivism proposes flies yeah. completely in the face of modern biology, yeah. evolutionary theory and history, and makes no sense that altruism or any kind of selflessness is an evil. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And not only in light of how good we feel when we help other people, how much better society is when we, you know, we see somebody with a flat tire and we pull over and help them, even though we are now late to work or whatever. And then how how we propagate our genetics. It's, it's entwined intertwined in everything that we do as a society. Being a society means to be in some way altruistic. It also means to be in some way um, self-interested. So it's 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 not one or the other, it's both. And I think that's clear. I, I don't know why they the objectivists so yeah. fervently reject altruism. Um, we don't just see it in humans, we see it in plenty of other animals. And we see it in other animals for the exact same reason. Their genes want to get to the next generation. The next Next generation's genes are very important to us, and we act according. Yeah, they really want it to be true for some stupid reason, but I think yeah. that this... How many people do you know say something like, I would die for my kids. I would die to save my children. Yeah. This is obviously an evolved instinct. It's obviously to propagate your genetics at least after you read Dawkins. And it's obviously flies directly in the face of Randian objectivist self-interest. So two pillars down, <laughs> one pillar stands. Uh, Goddamn, there's still a fourth. The reality pillar still stands. Yeah. Even though it's, uh, I don't think, I don't think we had any criticism of the reality pillar yet. I think objective reality is, is a, is a good, is a good cornerstone. But now the fourth, capitalism. Okay, so the fourth pillar of objectivism. Henry, shut up. The fourth pillar of objectivism. Capitalism. So their little catchphrase. Oh, 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 shit. USA. USA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so their little catchphrase is, give me liberty or give me death. Oh, fuck off. And they have That's a picture of Lady Liberty uh, on the website. Again, this uh, is ayanrand.org. Uh, so capitalism, they, not just capitalism, right? Because I think we can all agree capitalism is a 
net positive. Yeah. And when you chant USA, I know it's a little bit tongue in cheek. I think uh, we ha- we have gotten our mix fairly correct. I think we're the closest. You might you could probably argue Australia and parts of Europe, but I think sure. we have a very useful and effective mix, economic mix. Yeah. Uh, capitalism, though, unfettered, laissez-faire capitalism, as it's known, is uh, let's see, let's see what it says here. So economically, this means not today's mixture of freedom and government controls, but a complete separation of state and economics in the same way and for the same reasons as the separation of church and state. Motherfucker. So right, right off the get-go, it's like, uh, not the capitalism that you know. Uh, we, we're referring to this type of capitalism. Well, this is this is a definition of capitalism uh, that specifies what we're talking about a little more. So capitalism uh, in and of itself is just a free market economy, um, right. a non-government controlled economy, uh, which would be just sort of, in, in essence, the opposite of socialism. Uh, and you could say... You might you might be able to say the opposite of um, communism too, but there's some there's some gray areas there that are worth um, ferreting out. We won't do that now. But so um, laissez-faire capitalism is the system of individual rights. In such a in such a system, the government has only one function, albeit a vital one, to protect the rights of each individual by placing the retaliatory use of physical force under objective control. So Randian philosophers and followers constantly talk about this. This is how they uh, take on the ridiculous position that the baker should not be forced to bake a cake for homosexuals because you cannot force somebody to do something they don't want to do. This is obviously ridiculous in the sense that um, we force people to do things they don't want to do all the time. That's called prison. And we do it for good reasons. We do it when they neglect to take into account morality and ethics and they see fit to do what they want. Uh, which inevitably uh, ends up infiltrating and and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of stepping on the rights of somebody else. All right. So this yeah. idea is it's no government uh, except to protect the rights of the individual, uh, albeit by force. <laughs> they must they must use force to protect. But any objectivist is going to say that there are limits. There are limits to this amount of force. And I agree. The, I don't think capital punishment is uh, viable, mor- morally speaking. I think the argument for capital punishment is an economic argument. And I think it's a valuable argument to have. I think there are instances where you might decide to kill somebody as opposed to keep them alive for economic reasons. But it is not a moral issue. The moral issue is resolved. Murdering people is not good. <laughs> it's immoral. The only time it is good is when they're trying to murder you or an innocent person. So we got that. We figured that out. The idea that... And I know you and I might disagree on some of these particulars, but I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking as us. I'm speaking as me. Uh, and we can get into that if you want, but we don't have to. Um, yeah. But this idea that the government shouldn't be allowed to tell people that they have to... If, if they want to participate in the economy, then they cannot discriminate. Now, in a Randy objectivist is going to say, we have a right to discriminate. And I will agree with that, but there's a caveat. So we have a right to discriminate for things like jobs. Like you have to have the qualification. You can't go be an architect to borrow from Fountainhead if you don't know shit about building houses, right? If you have been formally educated in how to flip burgers at Pizza or excuse me, at Burger King, you are not going to be an architect. If you apply, we will reject you. And that is discriminatory. Granted. But immoral discrimination, discrimination without any objective reason, meaning without an actual reason. You don't have the qualifications. That's an objective reason. Your brain does not 
contain the information needed to successfully build a house, right? Or uh, to be an architect. That's an objective reason. You're gay is not an objective reason to deny somebody the cake that you said you would make for the public. This isn't a private athletic club type place where you pay some sort of monthly fee to go use a facility. This is a public good. This is somebody offering their services to the public. And if they're going to try to reject the public based on no reason at all, then yes, it's the government's job to step in. That is how we desegregated the South. I don't think anybody can take a correct moral position that we should resegregate the South or that we should not have desegregated the South. Uh, that is part of the government's job to ensure that everybody is allowed to, to participate in the economy. I think that is a right. I think you have a right to pursue happiness. And that is basically translate into interacting in the economy unfettered. Yep. And I'm a big individual rights person. I don't want to give the impression that I'm not. I don't think that the collective is the end-all be-all. I do think it, it. the collective is made up of individuals. And so there is an argument to be had there. There's there's reasons to, to, uh, to take into account what the overall impact on society is going to be of any action. But it's because those the, that society is made up of individuals. So by protecting the society, by protecting the collective, you are protecting yourself. By protecting yourself, you are therefore... Co- uh, protecting the collective. Now, obviously, you can say that as a sweeping statement, and then all of a sudden, you've got to put in a whole bunch of caveats because that just doesn't say enough. But laissez-faire capitalism is not effective. It doesn't work. It works in some instances, it's some in some aspects of the economy. For instance, I think laissez-faire capitalism uh, is great for the clothing industry. It's great for goods and services where there's lots of competition. There's very little barrier to competition. Uh, so house cleaning services, dog sitting services, uh, most goods and services in the economy can be fairly well run with a laissez-faire capitalist economy. It falls short when somebody tries to introduce a product that's harmful to people and the slow transmission of information prevents people from knowing that it's harmful. And then all of a sudden we have some kind of epidemic or we have some kind of social problem where people are dying or getting sick or whatever, right? That's where the government steps in and says, no, there are some regulations. If you're going to introduce a product, it has to be at least tested to make sure that it doesn't kill people. Well, yeah, I think laissez-faire capitalism has its problems and the antidote to some of those problems are are socialism or communism. I think socialism has its problems and the antidote to that is communism and capitalism. And I think communism has its problems. And obviously the antidotes are the other two. I mean, public parks are communist. They add the necessary ingredients when needed. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a baking recipe. It's you can you can mix and match and and I mean we have great examples of effective communist economic schemes like uh, public parks, public lands. Yeah. Um, roads. We have great uh, examples of socialist uh, or of socialism of the socialist uh, viewpoint or whatever you want to call it with uh, our military. Um, we have great examples of capitalism in our economy. I think mixed economies are the way to go because I think these other any one of these economic structures assists and helps any one of the others 
depending on on the need, whatever is needed. So this idea that laissez-faire capitalism is the only way, that it's the best way, it it definitely does... uh, Well, I'll just say capitalism, not laissez-faire, because that's ridiculous. But capitalism definitely has its advantages. It's one of the best ways to improve living conditions in a country, um, as are the the individual rights of women and their reproductive rights, um, along with agriculture. But you... You have to recognize that in order to have a military, that is a socialist position. That there is no private military. Right. It's a socialist structured entity that works for the good of the people and defends the country. That's exactly what it's for, and it's a hundred percent socialist. Yeah. You have to recognize that we all benefit from things like public roads, public air quality. Altruism is not evil. And the folks that are unable to, for whatever reason, manage themselves in the way that this objectivist Randian ethic proclaims one must. It's so weird the way she does it. Um, The ones that are unable do benefit from us helping them and we benefit by helping them. So of the four pillars, the only one that stands the test of time and the objective look at it is reality. I I think it's hard to argue against reality in the way that she lays it out um we give just i'm sorry dude no go ahead do we even give her credit for i mean that's not her pill well she she adopted it uh as part of her her philosophy we can give her credit for adopting it she didn't come up with this though a is a was something aristotle proved um i mean this was before jesus (laughs) so (laughs) if you believe in jesus but i mean this was before the time of the modern era so aristotle figured all this out before all that so So the reality pillar stands alone she adopted it and then you think she adopted other three pillars or was this where iron red kicked in and just started creating um she wasn't she didn't uniquely come up with any of these ideas what was unique about it was how she put them together and how she so fervently advocated for self-interest that self-interest was the highest moral good that taking care of yourself was the best thing you can do morally in society that that was hers i think originally all right uh a quick critique of the book uh it sucks A quick critique of objectivist philosophy, while it does have uh, some merits, uh, there are some diamonds in the rough, as it as it is said. Uh, it sucks. It doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It doesn't reflect reality, and it contradicts itself in such ironic ways that it is almost laughable. It can be it can be dismissed offhand. Grab the grab the uh, Aristotelian logic. A is A. Grab that. Hold on to it. Put it in your toolbox. Grab the idea that the individual is important as a moral agent, and is we have to have individual rights in order order to have a collective right in order to have a community of morally ethically engaged and and effective and valid society but it is not the end all be all individual rights are not the only thing one must take into account and uh individual rights and the individual is not the highest moral order morality does not have such an absolute every moral situation must be taken in 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 its own context and addressed as such you have to reason your way through everyone there is no moral absolute um not only that but altruism is clearly not evil so we can close out ayn rand we don't ever have to speak of her again uh i highly recommend that we don't unless we're making fun of her or somebody that believes in her or or we're short on master 
masturbation material. Well, let me let me have a look at her online. She's a looker. But let me just say this real quick before we close the book. Yeah. So interestingly enough, and and I guess at your surprise, you sounded surprised when we said when I said when I touched on this earlier. This didn't just become popular for five years and then fall to the wayside. There is a huge group of people who consider themselves Randian objectivists. They are almost exclusively in the right wing. There are many of them in the right wing, and her ideas and policies, her her um, proclamation of free will, her belief in free will, her her belief in the individual as the highest. Moral Moral good and so on, altruism is evil. All these ideas have permeated into the right wing. This is why you see so many social programs being cut, why you see so much public school funding being cut. It's not exclusively because of that of Ayn Rand, but she has definitely tipped the scales. And many of these political, I'll, I'll put air quotes around this, philosophers, but many of our politicians quote Ayn Rand or refer to Ayn Rand or sing her praises. Um, most of if not all of the laissez-faire capitalists got this idea from Ayn Rand and it sprung forth recently this Tea Party-ish libertarian political wing of the right that sounds good on paper sometimes uh, but anytime any of these guys actually talk at length you just you're, you just start hearing just drivel so anyway it, it is it is affecting us today it is part of our polit- political landscape in the United States and abroad yeah so amazing. It's amazing that this woman and this book had such an impact when you consider how devoid of... It's basically, it's a pulp. It's just pith. All right. Well, there you have it. The Midwest Misanthrope and yours truly, Dissecting Fountainhead and the Randian Objectivist Philosophy. Uh, I hope this was uh, entertaining for you. Uh, again, I'm very sorry for all the background noises. This is precisely the reason why in season three, um, I moved on from working with the Midwest Misanthrope. Uh, there just uh, wasn't enough there. Um, and it was very difficult to edit a podcast that he participated in. Now, um, if you were following the first season, I talked a lot about what it's like to make a podcast and how to put one together and who you should pick to co-host with you if you're going to have one and so on. And I'm not going to talk about that too much this season. I'm just going to do intros, outros, and publish the content that I have. I'm focusing a lot more on bringing you season three, which is going to be very focused and very direct and hopefully something that you all enjoy very much. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ear Seduction. Surrounded by the voices of